You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. Well, we're halfway into the book of Daniel. Are you glad or sad? Is the book driving you crazy like it is me? Oh, man. It's just, and, and we're getting to the good stuff now. <laughs> One of the things that I am always intrigued with is the power of symbols. They're all kinds of, we're a symbol-driven world, and it's, it just comes out in lots of different ways, but a symbol that just popped up into the kind of front page of the news feed is this one. You recognize that? that uh, that's done by uh, Arturo de Modica, in December of 1989, after the big crash of 87, he put this where? Where did, where did he put it? In front of the New York Stock Exchange, in the middle of the street, at night, without permission. And he did this thing on his own nickel. Well, New York City didn't like it in the middle of this broad street, so they picked up and moved it a couple of blocks away, as it turned out, and it's been there since 1989. What's it a symbol of? Of the bull market. And what's that mean? That's the surging market, economic success. Put your money here, be involved. This is what's gonna change the world is economic success. And this bull, it's a, I mean, it's a powerful bull. That's the, that's the symbol of, of many ways, the United States and our economic power, which is unparalleled in the world. About a month ago, an addition was made. Have you followed this? What's this? What's in front of the raging bull now? Or the charging bull, not the raging bull. The fearless little girl. The fearless little girl. And what does a fearless little girl represent? What's well, a statement of how few high-level executives there are in Wall Street? It's a call for gender equality. And this little girl who's being run down by the charging bull is fearless. And it's become quite the fight. Uh, done by Kristen Vespel. And so the raging bull, the charging bull, Arturo, is now threatening to sue unless the little girl is moved. How come? Because it totally changes the meaning of his sculpture. Because what has been a symbol of economic success has now become a symbol of male chauvinism and oppressive realities. And he says, get little girl away from here. Put her somewhere else. He likes the statue. He's totally in favor of the statue. But in this context, it ruins his symbol. And you see what happens with symbols. They connote all kinds of different things. So are you for the fearless little girl or the charging bull? <laughs> no, no sides here. I'm for Jesus. We're talking about the beastly kingdoms. Because what's happening here in the book of Daniel, as we hit in the second half for the rest of our series, is we're talking now in, in a very different kind of way. Let me show you what this means. The shape of Daniel, just some basic introduction. So I'll geek out on you here a little bit. I'll, we'll get back into reality here in a few minutes. Uh, when we look at this, the shape of Daniel, chapter 1, you know, that's, uh, that's the picture there where Daniel is in the food stuff, and that's written in Hebrew. Then chapters 2 through 7 are written in Aramaic. 
Hebrew is the language of the Hebrew people, of course, the children of Abraham. Uh, Aramaic is the trade language of the day. They're related languages. But this is, this is the language that would be spoken all through the Middle East at that point, a very common language. And everybody in Israel, of course, would have been bilingual. And the last 8 through 12 are again written in Hebrew, shape of the language. So when you look at that section, 2 through 7, it begins back in chapter 2 with Daniel or, of Nebuchadnezzar having a dream of this statue. And, and then Daniel interprets that as four empires and the meteorite that's going to come and crush the statue is the kingdom of God, the everlasting kingdom, chapter 2. Chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar is identified as the head of gold, so he builds an image of gold. If I'm gold, let's do it, and has everybody worship the statue. Well, what happens? The three friends say, we will not worship your statue, O king. Now, they're valued servants in the kingdom, but we will not worship your statue. He says, okay, fiery furnace with you. And they say, okay, our God can deliver us, but even done, we will not worship your statue. And they are faithful, and God exalts them. Chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar is turned into a raging, insane maniac because of his arrogance before God. After seven, because of his arrogance, he is, goes from being a human into a beast. And after a period of time, he repents, humbles himself, and God exalts him, the king of Babylon. Chapter 5, Josh helped us see that in a similar thing, Belshazzar, the king who followed Nebuchadnezzar after he died, also is arrogant before God and in a time when the Persians are nearby and attacking, he goes and gets the implements from the Jewish temple to bring into his drunken frat party with his friends, and he is doing sacrilege with the very implements of the temple of God, and God gives him a warning. He refuses to be exalted, and he's murdered that night by the Persian invaders as they break into... It's, wow. Whew. Okay. Chapter 6. Jay helped us see that Daniel now is the one who will not pray to the gods of Babylon. He will pray to Yahweh. The king, although he values him highly, says, okay, here you go, lion's den. And we looked at what it would be like to be in our own lion's den. But the point is, Daniel is faithful to Yahweh, even his life on the line, and he is delivered and exalted. Today's story in chapter 7 Daniel's dream of four empires, and you see the parallelism there. Talking about four empires and the kingdom of God is what really counts. So you see the, the literary, uh, my friend Tim Mackey says, the literary ninja at work in the design of this book. It's brilliant in the way it's put together. That's the Aramaic section that we finish up today. But there's another picture. There's another picture. As you look at the book of Daniel, the first half, one through six, is narrative about Daniel and his friends. The second half, chapter 7 through chapter 12, is apocalyptic that's given to Daniel, so he has written down these visions that he has, and it's very different kind of literature. The first six chapters are just stories. You can read them, and there's stuff in there that's perplexing, but it's basically just narrative. But chapter 7 through 12 is a totally different kind of stuff. They're dreams and visions and perplexing things. 
And when we think apocalyptic literature, which is what we do for the rest of this series in Daniel, I want to just give you a bit of an introduction here on what to do when you see apocalyptic literature, because it comes many times in the Bible. It's in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Joel, of course, Daniel, Zechariah. In the New Testament, it's Matthew 24, 25. It's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It's the book of Revelation. And you get this sort of thing showing up in other places. And apocalyptic literature basically is this. And this is on the back of your sermon notes. If you're mad note takers and are already totally mad at me, this is on your note. And for you to have to get every note, the PowerPoint's on the website. You can get it there. It's resistance literature. And it's written in the context of oppression. It's written in the context of persecution and despair, like we see in Daniel's case. And it's resistance literature because you're being overwhelmed by the kingdom of this world. And what do you do when you're being overwhelmed? Think of the Polish resistance during World War II or someone like that. Heroic people, but against impossible odds. Resistance literature is to give you hope in that time. This apocalyptic literature gives you hope by giving you God's perspective in the midst of perplexing times. Does that sound like it could be timely today? Mm-hmm. Big time. That's why we're doing Daniel. So the point is, we adopt God's narrative, not the beast's narrative. What's the beast's narrative these days? You're being oppressed by the bad guys. The only hope you have is to be free like the fearless little girl and be yourself. That's the only way you can possibly survive. And that's the way of despair. What's the God's perspective? God is at work bringing restoration and fulfillment. You don't have to defend yourself with anger and vitriol. It's pessimistic. Apocalyptic literature is pessimistic about positive change in the present. The beasts are in charge. This is the, this is the, this world, the prince of this world is, is Satan. He is alive and well and at work. The beasts are raging. But while evil is real, it will only be overcome finally by God's presence. And that gives us a perspective that says, you know, there is a lack of hope, but that's not the end. Evil is real, it is at work, but the thing of it is, there is a sharp contrast between now, the present evil age, and a future time of God's coming. And in this future perspective means that we look for God's work here now. It's not just a future coming of the kingdom. The kingdom is here now, in part, but it's working in unexpected ways. This is not the consummating kingdom. This is not the dominating kingdom. This is the upside-down kingdom. And you have to look to see it because it doesn't make the front page of the major newspapers. It's not the breaking news on the evening newscast. It's not the frenzied graphic. Filled with symbolism. All kinds of weird stuff and often extreme. And the point is, look to the biblical context, look to the first audience to interpret it, not to our own crazy imagination. Remember when I first started studying the book of Revelation a long, long, long time ago, and I was reading some stuff, and I read about the, the locusts there in Revelation, and I, 
I knew about locusts. I mean, I'd grown up on a farm. We actually, I know what they do, but what's the point? So I picked up and stuff read, oh, those are Sikorsky helicopters. Of course they are. Of course that's Sikorsky helicopter that fits right into my prophetic timeline. Wrong. You know, you look to the first audience. You look to the biblical context. Joel picks locusts as a scourge that comes in and uses this as a picture of the day of the Lord. That's what locusts represent in the book of Revelation. They're designed to make us supernaturally faithful in perplexing times. It's not designed to have us be supernatural predictors. God knows if one more prediction of the return of Jesus Christ comes out, I'm going to scream. I may, I may, I will, I promise you. I just saw a thing came through a news feed this week that Barack Obama is still the Antichrist. I mean, come on, he's not president anymore. He's living in Washington. Oh, that's it, he's working secretly. Oh, come on. I got a book a while back about that thick that proved that Prince Charles was the Antichrist. Everybody believes that, don't you? See, and get over it, get over it. We talked about Mark 13 back in that series, and what we saw there, the message was stay calm in a world that demands you to be frenzied and frantic. Stay loyal, preach on. So we read these literature worshipfully from our heart. And that's what we're going to be doing in the next several sermons as we continue working through the book of Daniel. It's an amazing book. So let's do it. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a... No, wait, wait, wait. I thought Belshazzar was dead. Didn't we kill him back in chapter 5? Not we, but... Didn't he get killed? Like, we're going backward. Yeah, we're in a different section. This is the apocalyptic visions, and the first one of those that Daniel records happened back in a good while back, because Daniel is now in Cyrus, the Persian, who has replaced Belshazzar. Daniel had a dream. Visions passed through his mind. He was laying in his bed. He wrote them down, the substance of his dream. Daniel said, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me were four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Okay, think of sea. What does that connote for you? What comes up in your mind when you think of sea? I think of this. I think of Arch Cape. And see, to me, the sea is a symbol of peaceful power, even in the storm. The sea is a very calming place for me. I go to the sea often and walk along the beach, and it's a very, very calming place for me. But see, for Jewish folk, that was not the case. The sea to them meant something like this. It is a terrible place. It's a place that kills you. It's a place that leaves you sunk. It's a place where it's chaos. It's danger. It's uncontrollable evil. And when you see sea in Scripture, that's usually what it means when it's using this kind of language. So in the end of Revelation, it talks about in the new earth, there will be no sea there. Does that mean surfers need to turn in their surfboards before they go to heaven? Probably. <laughs> no, it means that the restless evil is gone. It's been conquered. Then you look at this. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. Oh, this is not going to be good. The first is like a lion. Does that remind you of anything? 
chapter 2. What was the lion in chapter 2? Well, that was Nebuchadnezzar. Parallels here are obvious and clear. He had the wings of an eagle. I watched how its wings were torn off. Oh, my gosh. It was lifted from the ground, so it stood on two feet like a human being and had a mind of a human was given to it. Nicholas Pena has done some amazing art and try to think what this might have looked like as Daniel saw it in his nightmare vision. And you see the, the raging lion covered with blood as it does its work of killing and destroying. Second beast, which looked like a bear. It raised up on one of its sides, had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. Again, Nicholas Pena. It's already got a mouthful of food, and it's told, eat more, which speaks to the ravenous of its conquest that's going to go on with the huge claws and teeth. After I looked and there was before me another beast that looked like a leopard. Note these are all like statements. On its back had four wings like those of a bird. The beast had four heads and given authority to rule. Again, Nicholas Pena in his rendition of what that might have looked like in the night. Four-headed leopard? Like weird stuff. Exactly. Exactly. This is the nightmare vision of apocalyptic literature. After that in my vision, I looked and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. Haven't we seen that already? This is even more so. He had large iron teeth, it crushed and devoured its victims, trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns, symbols of power. While I was thinking about the horns there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. Again, Nicholas Pena. Trying to give a picture of what this might have looked like. Only here we need a video as this little horn grows up and speaks boastful things. The four beasts. At the time that Daniel would have been read most early, probably in the time of the second century AD, they would probably have interpreted this way. The, the lion clearly is Babylon. I mean, you know that. The next, the bear would be the Medes, the leopard would be the Persians, and the ferocious beast, the mega beast, would be Greece. And they'd think of Antiochus Epiphanes, who came in and took over Jerusalem, installed the God, Greek gods in the statue, in the temple of Yahweh, forbade the practice of worship of Yahweh, stopped the sacrifice desecrated the temple, killed Jews in incredible numbers. It was the worst time in Jewish history up until the Holocaust, probably. Later, by the time of the New Testament, they would probably read it this way. Babylon, well, it's Nebuchadnezzar, we know that. The lion is clear. And the lion, when you look at that, you think of him uh, having his wings torn off and giving, well, that seems like Chapter 4, where he loses his mind and goes insane and then submits himself to Yahweh and is restored. The bear, 
leaning to one side. Well, if that's the Medo-Persian Empire, the Persian Empire is far more powerful than Medo. So it's leaning to one side. The three bones in its mouth are probably Babylon, Lydia, and Egypt, the three great kingdoms that the Persians conquered quickly. And you see how that works out. The leopard, well, that's likely Greece. Who is the great king of Greece we all learned about in history? Alexander the Great. How long did it take Alexander to conquer the Persian Empire that, that ruled the whole, pretty much the whole known world at that point? How long did it take him to conquer the Persian Empire? Four years. Leopard is fast and voracious. How old was Alexander when he died? 33 years old. And it was his country was handed over to his four generals, thus perhaps the four heads of the leopard could be. The super mega beast, well, that would be Rome, the last kingdom, last empire to rule the known world, then and since. So that'd be another interpretation. But we keep reading. We can't stop with the beastly kingdoms. We've got to keep reading. As I looked, the thrones were set in place. The Ancient of Days took it. Now, what does Ancient of Days mean? It means some guy's old like me. Well, that's the picture, but there's a different thing. This Ancient of Days you keep reading. He took his seat, his clothing was white as snow, hair was white like wool. His throne head was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. And you think about that if you're a Bible nerd like me, you immediately think of the Godmobile in Ezekiel chapter 1. Here's the Godmobile shown up again. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before them. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Very different picture than the beastly kingdoms. Maybe looking something like this. I mean, who knows? Who knows what he was seeing? But incredible glory in completely different style and place. Then I continued to watch, he says. Because of the boastful words that Horde was speaking, I kept looking until a beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into a blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. Huh. But it doesn't stop. We're shifted back up into heaven. And we have a picture now. In that vision that I looked there before me, it was one like the Son of Man. One like a son of man, just like it was like a lion or like a bear, like a son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the ancient days and was led into his presence and given authority, glory, sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit. I'll bet he was. I bet I am. As I ponder these things, the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. Why? He's got a lot of beastly kingdoms yet to come. The conflict and oppression I approached one of those standing there and asked the meaning of this. He told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth. But 
the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever, yes, forever and ever. And the story goes on. I'll not read the rest of it today. How do we interpret this? How do we interpret the, the beastly kingdoms? Well, we're told they're kings of the earth, so we know what the beasts are, the lion, the bear, the leopard, and the mega beast. And we see that these kingdoms on earth have terrifying power. Terrifying power. Have you ever been in front of a lion when it roared? It's an incredible, incredible, I mean, it just blasts you. I mean, I, I'm told that lions roar to just terrify and stop their prey. That's the kind of picture that's being used here. Terrifying power. I think of people in Poland when they heard that the Germans were coming from one side and the Russians coming from the other side. Terrifying power. Blasphemous domination and evil. When I think of what the Roman general Titus did in Jerusalem when he destroyed the city, burned the temple. But before he burned the temple in 70 AD, he was very careful to desecrate it completely. We see in the book of Daniel the kind of blasphemy that was going on in Daniel's life. Because they can't tolerate the worship of Yahweh. They don't only have to stop it, they have to, they have to desecrate it. They have to do blasphemy. We're seeing a fair bit of blasphemy being done in our city and in our country. Hatred for Jesus. We see cruel conquest. You see it in the scripture, but if you look in history, you see the same kind of thing. When the beastly kingdoms come, they do unspeakably evil things. I saw the story of the Afghani soldiers lounging in their camp this week when a group of Al-Qaeda people came in and went through and just did horrible things. Kill them is one thing, but far worse than that, deliberate cruelty meant to be terrifying. Congo, East Congo. How do you remember Doug and Ruth Hazen? They did mission trip there. They were there during the Rwandan genocide on the Congo side. Right now, Stephen Sluster Tracy, friends of mine doing Mending the Soul, he, I heard a statistic from Steve just a couple of weeks ago that I didn't believe. I looked it up. It's true. The number of rapes that are happening in East Congo right now per hour, 48 women an hour are being raped as cruel conquest. This is the kind of stuff that happens then and now by the beastly kingdoms. There is boastful arrogance. Antiochus Epiphanes, who came and destroyed Jerusalem, took it over in 167 BC. Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus' name, Epiphanes the Greatest, self-designated. We're seeing a, a rise of narcissistic leaders that are happening in our society today, even more so than the normal leaders. The boastful arrogance becomes a, 
That's the beastly kingdoms, then and now. What do you do when you're living in the midst of the beastly kingdoms? Because they're terrifying. They're perplexing. They're disorienting. They demand loyalty. And see, what happens is what Daniel is doing as apocalyptic literature is saying, yes, that's real, it's terrifying, but keep looking because there's another kingdom. It's the kingdom of the Ancient of Days in verse 9. And where the beastly kings are terrifying power, the Ancient of Days is sovereign power that nobody can stop when he acts. And we all say, how long, O Lord, until you stop the beastly kingdoms. Apocalyptic literature, Revelation chapter 6 says, and yet a little while. Instead of blasphemous demeaning and evil, there is holy purity and goodness when you look at the Ancient of Days. But you have to look to see it because the beastly kingdoms are very, very dominating. Instead of cruel conquest, there is righteous judgment. Instead of boastful arrogance, there is worshipful rule. And see, what we're called to do is where we give our attention. It's not easy to give your attention to the ancient of days when you're in the midst of the beastly kingdoms. That's why you read apocalyptic literature, to give us that hope in times of persecution and domination and oppression. But there's another kingdom. That's the Son of Man kingdom. Because the Son of Man goes into the throne room of the ancient of days and he's like a human. He's like a human, like a Son of Man is like a human. He is everlasting dominion, under like the beastly kingdoms, all of whom fade out of existence, as the kingdoms of our day do as well. There is, he is the head of the holy people of the Most High. It's not him by himself, it's the holy people with him. They're in this battle with the beast because the beast is absolutely oppressing them. Next week, Matt will unpack the Son of Man for us. And we've been talking about it a lot. He'll do a great job, be here, as we unpack this third kingdom, which of course is our kingdom because we are the holy people of the Lord Most High. If you've aligned yourself with that kingdom, this is the way I look at it. Earth, but we see a sequence of beastly kingdoms coming up. The lion, the bear, the leopard, the mega beast. Dominating. Real, cruel, oppressive, punishing. But there's another kingdom. There's another place. Another rule, heaven, which is totally different. And we're not thinking of heaven as a place you go home or die. We're thinking about a heaven as a place of God that's actually in this world and at work. And there in heaven is where the Son of Man is before the Ancient of Days. He is enthroned on the throne of glory right now. The people of the holy people, the Most High, are living in the midst of the beastly kingdoms. That's us. And the question is, where will our attention be? Where will our values come from? 
where our imaginations be captured. And if your imaginations are captured by the beastly kingdoms, it will be thrilling for a while, and it will leave you in despair. If your imagination is set on the Ancient of Days, it will be difficult to do, because sometimes the Ancient of Days is not very real. That's what we call to look at Jesus, who is the concrete representation, the exact representation, Hebrew tells us. He has come to explain the Ancient of Days, John 1.18. And we looked at Jesus then and now. How do we interpret this? There's a lot of stuff that goes on. I think that human kingdoms have both beautiful and beastly aspects. Let's go back to the Babylonian kingdom, the one that Daniel's focused on in much of the book. Good thing or bad thing? Well, in that era before Babylon conquered the rest of the world, there were all kinds of civil wars going on, all kinds of battles happening. People are constantly being overrun by soldiers on a conquesting rampage. When Babylon became the empire, they conquered everything. Good thing or bad thing? Well, it's a good thing if you're a Babylonian. Not so good if you're a Hebrew who refuses to worship the gods of Babylon. There's beautiful and beastly aspects to every kingdom. We have to understand that. They seem unconquerable, but they inevitably fail and fall. I think of the kingdom of England, the British kingdom, the empire. If you go back, what, 75 years? What's the symbol, what's the, what's the image of the British Empire? It's the British Lion. Their slogan, the sun never sets on the British Empire. Why? Around the world. India, what we call Vietnam now, South America, South Africa. What's the, was it a good thing or a bad thing? What about India? What about the Raj in India? You've all heard of the story of Gandhi who resisted the Raj in its oppression. But for many in India, it was a really good thing. Economic success, stability, so many good things. Important thing, the empires of this world, the beastly kingdoms, cannot save the people of God. I'm an old man. I've seen many political campaigns here, and I've seen time after time how Christians say, Vote for this candidate, he will save us. The answer is, no, he won't. Or hear people saying, don't for that, he's a beast. Well, no, whoever it is, they're not going to save us. But the other side is, they can't destroy us. The beastly kingdom, no matter how powerful, cannot destroy the people of God. Oh, they can martyr you. Think of what's happening in parts of the Middle East right now where Christians are having their heads cut off and other cruel ways of killing them. You know, the persecution's real, but they can't stop it. They can't. There are many super mega beasts, it seems to me. 
not one in some sort of prophetic chart. So Babylon, we've got that. What's a super mega beast? Well, a super mega beast in Daniel is Antiochus Epiphanes, the Greek kingdom. A super, another super mega beast, Matthew chapter 26, is the Roman Empire. Another super mega beast is the high priest. Matt will unpack that for us. The, the dominion of the religious system of Jerusalem has become a super mega beast. A little bit later, Islam rampaging across North Africa. It was the central point of Christianity. Islam raged across and it was gone. Did they destroy Christianity in North Africa? No, but a lot of people lost their lives. There is the Crusades. Ironically, in the name of Jesus Christ, became a super mega beast rampaging and destroying across Europe and the Middle East. Many super mega beasts, it seems to me. The narrative. Human institutions are progressing as evolution proceeds. True or false? Well, technically, it's true. Our standard of living is far higher now than it was 200 years ago. It's much higher than when I was a boy. Is that making us better? No. We're bettering at killing each other. We can insult each other far more effectively now with Twitter and Facebook than we could before. What is we're saying here? Human institutions all fall apart. What we're waiting for is Messiah and his kingdom. Another narrative that I hear a lot. The world will inevitably improve as the scope of individual freedom, self-definition, self-expression grows. That's the message of the fearless little girl. And if we are cast off the chains of oppression and are free to be me, then everything will be better. So everybody is either an oppressor or oppressed. And my answer is no, 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 that's not the way. That's not the way. The message of apocalyptic literature and of Daniel in particular, greatness comes when people humble themselves and serve the ancient of days with the son of man. That's where greatness comes from. That's where fulfillment happens. That's where hope happens, is in humble service, not arrogant service. God's kingdom is at work now and will ultimately prevail, but it's easy to miss. It's easy to miss. I have developed a, a, a commitment to read the newspaper with Christian eyes. And I'm surprised how often I see Christianity. And I go back and do what I can to get to the backstory and discover, yep, another Christian. It's been a joke in our house. We're watching something and I'll say, ah, oh, there's no else dang Christians ruining the world. But that's where the hope is. That's where the hope is. Pondering what is happening in this world is deeply troubling. I've got kind of this thing about reading the news. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe I should quit. Maybe I should get, is there an AA group for news junkies? I don't know. Very troubling. Serve, but don't put your hope in. Daniel and his friends were at the highest echelons of service in the beastly kingdoms. We serve well, even when the kingdom is beastly. But we don't put our hope there. 
kingdoms will fail. They will. And we look to the ancient days for hope when the boastful horn defeats the most holy people because he will defeat people, he will keep people, he can't destroy the people of God, but he can, we can lose a battle, we won't lose the war. Have you seen this? It's kind of the new thing in Portland. It's not out here in Gresham because you guys are, we're much more civilized out here. <laughs> but if you go downtown Portland, you find this thing, freedom is the distance between church and state. True or false? Both. 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 Freedom is the distance between church and state because we're not looking to a theocratic kingdom now. Only that will work with Messiah. When Christians try to become theocratically in charge of things, they always ruin it because there's not a kingdom of power. Does that mean that we can't be involved in the kingdoms of this world as Christians, which is often done? My answer is, we will serve. We will serve. We will serve, but not with dominating power. So we will live in the kingdom of the Most High, and that means to love God. And love God means be loyal to Yahweh only as God, and to believe him, trust him, even when he says it makes no sense. Loyal to Yahweh and Jesus only among the gods. Believe what he says, even when it makes no sense, which is often. And then to love and serve your neighbor and your enemy. I look in our Congress and I see what's happened when the basic Christian narrative is being cast aside completely. There is no forgiveness. There is no forgiveness. There can be no compromise when there is no forgiveness. And we're seeing it worked out in the polarizing politics in our capital. We need Christians to serve well. And we need to share the hopeful gospel a lot. Worship team, why don't you come back up here. I think about what's the symbol of Christianity. And this is a, the common symbol. We've got it in the back here, lighted across. And that's a picture of the kind of kingdom. It's the king that's willing to die for the sake of others. Another symbol of the kingdom of God is Agnus Dei, the Lamb of God. This is the seal of the Moravian Church. This is a stained glass window done by uh, John Jackman. This kingdom is led by a, lamb, by a lamb. What happens when a lamb comes up against a lion? The lion loves and serves the lion. It's a ponder for sure. How do you serve that kingdom? I ran across this icon from the need to be understood, from the need to be accepted, from the fear of being lonely. Deliver me, O oh God. See, that's the narrative of this world. And I saw that because I discovered Adria Assad, incredible songwriter. She's the daughter of a Syrian refugee, raised as Christian, incredibly creative and talented. And her song, I Shall Not Want. Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church. For more information about service times and ways to connect, 
visit us online at gracecc.net.